Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. I think it's really funny when we get our authors in here and they know each other, they greet each other with a And it wasn't prearranged. This is all by coincidence. It's amazing. So we've got Megan Anthony. And Mel Campbell and Anthony Morris. So we better get going. We better. Meg Mundell's book is about immigrant workers. They've been called a fresh shipment of muscle, ready and willing to work. But the book isn't titled Happy in a New Home. It's called the trespasses. Welcome back, Meg. Thank you, Jan. Lovely to be here. We've got BIMs, Balanced Industries Migrations. The ads promised regular wages, cheap medical care, on-site schools. Passengers just have to prove their mental and fitness to board this ship. Sounds good, or is it? Meg Mundell has used a lot of jargon of today and we're going to jump straight into page 12 just a little bit just to get us off with you know maybe the other aspects of uh, of this immigration idea okay shall I read this paragraph yeah okay two two Okay, you, you just stop me when I've been rambling too long. <laughs> <laughs> We're not having the whole book. We're just having this really insightful bit about the other side. Okay, for all the talk of assisted passage and mutual economic benefits, the slick, persuasive ads from rival shippers eager to cash in, they all knew what BIM was, an indentured labour scheme, balanced industries migration, a term dreamt up by spooked politicians and embraced by venture merchants who knew the value of live cargo, a healthy human body delivered cheaply to the right buyers. International handshakes, old ties and new treaties, imports and exports, relative needs holds full of grain exchanged for unskilled labour. Shipments guaranteed bug-free, propelled across the globe by wind power, no need to waste a drop of precious fuel. Deals swung by the former motherland, now crippled by disease, caught short with mouths to feed and nothing to put in them. Mm, right, so it doesn't sound quite so good. It sort of sounds like there's other other things in the fire, other stuff going on. So it was going to take them 60 days before they reached their destination, a far-off place, and you hinted at the motherland. So where's the ship coming to? Well, it's coming here. Mm. It's coming right here, pretty much. I'm not to the studio, but to <laughs> uh, ends the, up the in Port, Port Phillip Bay. Bay. It ends up anchored in Port Phillip Bay. Yeah. Yes. Uh, now everybody coming onto the ship could not bring their devices. Mm. Why not? And what devices? Well, I think this is roughly 50 years in the future. So mm. the devices would be fancier than would possibly even be embedded in under one's skin. Mm. Um, I'm not particularly technologically minded, so that was a, a good excuse <laughs> to leave them out. But, I mean, if you, you look at places like the new immigration um, prison that opened in Port Moresby, Papua New Guinea, four days ago, three days ago, um, 
all of the men transferred into that prison, 50 of them, their devices were confiscated. That was the first thing that happened. So it's about keeping secrets and not allowing the truth to get out. Oh, they were told it was for their own privacy. So there you go. Now, when the ship left... There were protesters on departure, people with a big sign, shipwrecks, deserters, travel makes trouble, close all borders. And when they arrived, there were more protesters, ships rats, dirty scabs, human trash, toxic cargo, foreign invaders. Even the immigration minister had called the people on board a walking death trap. So what happened in their time at sea? Well, as you can guess, it wasn't really a pleasure cruise. It all went horribly wrong. A pleasure cruise would have made it for a much more boring uh, book, I think. <laughs> Probably would have been less gruelling to write, but, yeah, things go horribly wrong. Um, something uh, comes on board with them that they were not expecting and all and hell a, breaks loose. And a brutal murder to start off too. So, look, Meg Armandel has given us characters we care about so that the fake news which is brought against them becomes the story and the personal hurt that we read. Well, you better tell us first about Cleary Sullivan. Oh, Cleary, I do love that little boy. Um, He's nine years old, almost ten, as he likes to tell people. Um, He's grown up in Dublin in quite a poor family um, in a block of flats. His dad is long gone um, and he's very close to his mum. Um, Cleary's also deaf. He got very sick three years before we meet him and he lost his hearing, so he's still adjusting to that. Um, and he's a very brave little boy, very insightful, very... He's a really good observer. He's really mm. learned to use his eyes and his other senses um, to read the world and the people around him. Yes, and it's always very difficult when they have to cover their mouth with a mask because it stops him reading their lips. Yeah. yeah, it's another layer of sort of isolation for Cleary when everybody has to put their masks <laughs> back on. I should say it's set against the context of a pandemic that they're mm. also fleeing. So, yeah, poor Cleary loses his limited ability to lip read as well. Now we have Billy. What was her previous job in Glasgow? She was uh, what we would call a hospital orderly. So she was a medical assistant in the hospital. So she'd help patients, um, you know, move them around. She'd, like, wash them, um, feed them, um, make sure that all the the protocols were followed in terms of, like, not spreading infection. So she did the grunt work in the hospital. And that uh, ward was called the death ward that she was... Looking after. Now she's after a new start, and uh, there's definitely a reason for her leaving, but uh, well, we have to read to find out. But she also has another talent, um, and Robbie says that she sang like an angel. Um, and this ability to sing allows her to meet the crew, and it does give her fresh advantages, you know, quoting from the book fresh bread from the oven, fly booze poured free or sold cheap and because she mixed with the crew she found out that there were sickness and on board and two passengers dead and buried covertly at sea their loved ones confined below decks for monitoring well at in time the captain threatened her to 
help with the nursing. How did you threaten her? Sort of, why, well, you know, why did she even want to help? with the nursing on board? Well, I think she didn't. I think none of them really wanted to mm-hmm. do it. But they were kind of press-ganged into it in a way and told that if they didn't help, then they would be at the prison waiting for them at the other end. They, The people that they selected were mostly women and they came from backgrounds where they'd worked in healthcare or um, medical settings or, or sort of um, personal care. So... They didn't really have a choice. But they were also told that they were going to get extra money for it. Oh, yes, that's right. Um, that was, kind of, I guess, to keep them quiet. They got paid a lot more. And that, of course, created resentment amongst the the crew members who were getting paid normal wages. So, again, they were they were you know persona non grata with the crew because of that too. Yeah. So, um, but she and these other co-opted nurses also became the news. You know, it came out. They were ill-equipped, under ability, uh, had didn't have the ability, and were overpaid. No wonder people died. Or another one, they were amateurs who profiteered from suffering and death. All these different aspects. It's always good to have a scapegoat to blame when things go horribly wrong, and that's the role that the nurses played here. Even though they actually saved lives, it would have been a lot worse without without them their help. It's, it's always good to have somebody else to point the finger at. Oh yes. Well, she nursed Cleary's mum, Kate, and cared for Cleary while the mum was in was ill. She also nursed Tom Garnet. Tell us a bit about Tom. Uh, Tom is a a school teacher from a posh, privileged background and his family lost their money in what I've called the crash, uh, which was an economic crash. And so he's uh, a bit ambivalent about teaching when he gets on the ship. He's got a nervous kind of character. He takes a lot of medication, sometimes for fun, Mm. uh, but he's got a really good heart and he ends up... Um, becoming very, very vulnerable and he's thrown, um, you know, on everyone's mercy. When they're sick, they're just completely powerless. So that creates a special bond with him and Billy, who's nursing Mm. him, and then there's also a connection with Cleary. So in this sort of triangle of characters is is how we view the story unfolding. And there's always an on-board romance. Who did Tom have his on-board romance with? Oh, this really hot sailor. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> young guy, I can see him very clearly. Uh, young guy from Aberdeen um, called Scoot or Stuart. They had a romantic assignation in a, in a cupboard early on. A uh, closet, actually. Yes, it was a closet. Yeah. Yeah, and um, Tom sort of yearns after this beautiful um, sailor, but... Uh, after things go horribly wrong, he finds this, the guy doesn't really want to know him anymore. No. And it's when Scoot is in delirium, he is yelling out poisoned water, which brings into question why? Why would somebody poison the water? Would it, could it ever been a deliberate act? And a quote, there's been talk that this was some kind of terror attack, bio-vigilantes, anti-migration gangs. Oh, and so it goes on. Look, it, there's so much in this book, Meg, that of course is so important today. You know, it, it, you bring in that whole idea about migration and people for and against and every issue. So it must have started from there. I think it started by me coming here on a boat, actually, and getting a very warm welcome ushered in. Hello, lovely to meet you. 
um, welcome aboard Australia and then seeing that other people didn't get that same welcome. Uh, yeah, and, and also it was also historical inspiration, of course. Um, all of the people who colonised this country arrived here by boat. So yes. there was another boat in the 1850s that called the Ticonderoga that arrived here and that was actually called a plague ship because things went even more horribly wrong on that ship. So it was sort of taking from history and projecting into the future. Well, thankfully, our National Trust kept in place the quarantine site at Port Nepean. Um, when it was last used, I'm sure they didn't use subdermal tracking devices that took regular uh, fever scans. And I'm sure the soldiers, or now called protection agents, were, who are now particularly good at shooting down drones. I'm sure back in that time that it was used for quarantine in Port Nepean, they didn't have those things. But uh, <laughs> They did have straight jackets in the early days because people with typhus would start to become very delusional. So there, there is, I don't know if it's still there, there's a straight jacket in a sort of display case that was used for some of the patients. So it didn't, didn't seem like a particularly jolly time back then either. Yeah, well, talking about not the jollies, it's it's also it's there's a beautiful cover on on the book. It's of a jellyfish, but um, you know it, it sort of brings us in, into thought about sort of even David Attenborough's ideas about what's happening with under the water with all the chemicals. Yeah, our, our oceans. Most of the book is set at sea. Almost all of the book is set at sea, um, which is an incredibly amazing place that we're completely ruining. Um, so I'll just read a little, a little um, piece in, in Cleary's um, thoughts. The ocean's lukewarm dead zones, all the sea creatures sickened by chemical waste, diseased squid, poison sharks, jellyfish hordes sifting the desolate currents, acid ravaged mutants roaming the seafloor. The way deep water sheltered fearful things. Even back home, you never knew what was down there. Salkies and marrows up the coast, the serpent lurking in Loch Foyle. Sea monsters are real. (laughs) Sea monsters are real. Well, they were definitely in Cleary's imagination and... By the look of the cover, hopefully there is pretty. Um, this this book, uh, the trespassers divided into three sections: steadfast, the nightingale, and landfall. Three sections, uh, three segments, but words with subtly different meanings. So, the present circumstances, which have inspired a fiction book of the future. Oh, Meg Mundell, what a re- Mundell, what a read! Absolutely great. So that's Meg Mundell's The Trespassers. Thank you, Jan. Um, now, not only do our authors know each other, I think they've been collaborating because in order to work out a segue, Meg's got a, an assignation in a closet. Uh, my authors today, Mel and Anthony, have got an assignation in a water closet. <laughs> so it sort of takes things to absurd extremes. But on a more serious note, satire allows us to delve with comic intent into some of the darker and more absurd aspects of people and society. Mel Campbell and Anthony Morris have used this genre to expose the ridiculousness of reality television in their novel Nailed It. So, Mel and Anthony, welcome to 3CR. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for having us. Now, you tantalise us with a new program called... The dock, and its particular feature is sinking ships. How on earth did you come up with that? I don't know. I think, it, much as we come up with a lot of our stuff, we just 
banter and have ideas and bat them back and forward, getting sillier and sillier all the time. But it's feasible. Well, that was it. Um, I think part of the... Really? How feasible is it, do you think? (laughs) They float the boats back up again. It's perfectly financially viable. Uh, Part of the thinking was uh, my sister lives down at Williamstown and being along the docks there uh, just sort of looked like the place where you could isolate enough people to to do some sort of reality show where you would be sinking boats every week. But, I mean, a lot of the other reality television shows at the moment are absurd, ridiculous. So the dock is... Plausible. I suppose so. Uh, we just really love the catchphrase that the audience shouts out every time they uh, sink a boat. Yeah. Remind us of that. That boat, boat won't, won't float. float. <laughs> so the reactions of the audiences, all of these sorts of things, you've, you've actually taken from real life, basically. Uh, you, you make references to other shows like Grim Designs and Nude Island they sort of exist already. That's right. It, the book kind of takes place in a nightmarish version of the world that everyone else lives in. But you've got, well, the main show that becomes the centre of the thing is Mansions in the Sky. It exists already. <laughs> Any blockhead would tell you that, I'm, I'm quite sure. Um, but what behind this, most of these programmes a formulaic and just stepping out of the novel for a minute there was an article recently about how they selected judges for MasterChef uh, and and they had to meet a certain criteria oh yeah it's incredibly calculating the way that they try and figure out who's going to meet which particular audience quadrants and who's going to have conflicts that will be exciting and interesting to watch and the personality types as well they had to meet specific criteria Oh, yes. It's very formulaic and very contrived. I mean, in, in um, the doc, you have Thor Thorsen. Uh, <laughs> who's a That's a beautiful pronunciation, by yes, the way. Thank you for that. <laughs> well, it adds to the, the absurdity. But in applying these sorts of formula, um, the, the, the psychological damage is quite extreme in some ways. They do put the contestants through a lot for the sake of television, and... I think a lot of people now, and, and for a while now, have been wondering whether that's worth it. Yeah, the price individuals have to pay mm. for our entertainment. That's true. But also, the individuals do get into it wanting something from their participation. I feel like when reality TV first became a thing, and we can talk even far, as far back as Sylvania Waters, if anyone remembers <laughs> that show, which was more, I suppose, what you would call a, a docu-soap yep. these days. But... Um, People were quite innocent about what it meant to have your life on TV and to have people watching you and judging you. But these days I feel like people are trying to actually springboard their careers using participation on these shows. Well, this does come up in uh, the novel because Mm -hmm. you have one contestant called Michelle Mm -hmm. who's out to promote her brand. That's oh, right. Yeah, there's a lot of people who go on these shows now to, to game the system and basically try and use it to their advantage. And the trick is, I think, for the producers as well to stay one step ahead so they're the ones still running the show and not the contestants. But they're playing each other oh, yeah, in many yeah. ways. It's, it's, it's quite perverse. Yes, yes, they're using one another, I feel, and, and we play with that perversity a bit in the novel too. <laughs> now, your central character is Rosie, a cabinet maker, mm-hmm. and it begins with her apprenticeship, uh, which is, is almost the opposite extreme. What's going on there? Well, she always wanted to have the kind of job where she makes things start to finish with her hands. She's very proud of how practical she is, and she just loves working with 
timber and um, making things from scratch. <laughs> and so that's why she got this job working for old Steve, who is kind of a caricature of the sort of person who makes absolutely everything from scratch. And the, he's frustrating her because he won't let her actually make anything. Well, she does make things. She makes nails. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. But it, it gets to the notion of getting to the fundamentals, getting to the basics, the principles behind mm. things, yeah. which is the exact opposite then of a reality TV show, which is just a, a total fabrication almost out of thin air. Now, inadvertently, Rosie finds herself catapulted into mansions in the sky. And it's almost like her life then doesn't become her own. It tweets, uh, views. How did she get into the show and, and what are the consequences in some ways? Well, basically, she, she needs a better job. Working for old Steve is, is not well paid and not satisfying in any direction. So when she stumbles uh, into an encounter with a friend of hers who's in this reality TV world, she sort of jumps at the chance to, to step up and she kind of hopes in a way that some of the magic will rub off on her. She doesn't want to be a contestant, but she does kind of still see that magic that they have around television and think that if she can be part of it, maybe something magical will happen to her as well. Well, she finds herself inadvertently going from the dock into mansions in the sky because she rescued a drowning dog. That's right. It's always her impulse to step in and do something. She can't bear to be the bystander just letting something happen. But then her life becomes a series of tweets and views and such like, which again is manipulated by the production company. Mm. Yes, she's sort of got to adapt to this world that she not only knows very little about, but it is just not something she's interested in. She, she's on the show to make things, but the show is not about making things. The show is about presenting an image in a world where things appear by magic, basically. And celebrity yes. and, and such like. So in rescuing the dog, she gets views because it goes onto YouTube and there are tweets and Twitters and she's got a friend on the other side of the world who keeps her informed about what the latest <laughs> image is that comes out. And and so it, it's almost your life doesn't – you don't own your own life in some ways. You know? Yeah, she does feel out of control, I think, in that world. We also then have um, the hierarchy within this production company. There's Leary Barker, the executive producer of Endeavour Productions. You can almost tell what's going to happen with Leary, can't you? <laughs> <laughs> We had a kind of we had fun with these Dickensian sort of character names, um, but what it speaks to is behind this. There's this whole power structure, control, domination, play going on because the viability of these productions is very tenuous. Oh yes, you look at the economics of most reality shows, and they're really tied into. Um, doing the show for as cheaply as possible and getting as much advertising on it as possible. They don't... I think I read somewhere that one of them, maybe the block, basically was cost-neutral for the network. It didn't cost them anything because all the costs were covered by the sponsorship deals. So you would assume once one or two of them fall out, suddenly the whole edifice starts to topple. Yes. Well, you've, you've got this Mansions in the Sky being filmed on a failed estate to begin with, so you're talking real estate corporate sort of affairs there. And then you've got Bad Bart's Toolshed. <laughs> <laughs> 
they're the sponsors. That's right. Yeah, we also had fun with the idea that there's always the most successful market-leading brand in any given category, and then there's the also-ran. Um, and unfortunately, Mansion's major sponsor is the also-ran brand. But they then want to rebrand. That's right. Yes, they think maybe it will be more prestigious if they can rebrand from Bad Bart's, which is a very low uh, sort of title, to be, uh, what was it? Bartlett's Home... Something like Bartlett's Home Emporium. (laughs) So you've got this struggle of people trying to remember what the the actual name is uh, as they currently film. Um, And so... But a show is only um, as good as the, the next show, so to speak. Another dimension is Rosie's personal life. I don't mm. want to give too much away. Well, it's the main story. It, well, <laughs> in a way, um, but, you know, the, the sorts of things that happen there. But to begin with, um, if I can put it this way, Rosie's from a dysfunctional family, but not in the way we normally think of a dysfunctional family. They're more financially dysfunctional. They, they all get along well. They just have chosen poorly career-wise. But, and that career is? Uh, the arts. <laughs> the arts. So they have devoted their lives to the arts. They were full of passion, but it rarely connected to anything in the real world. Mm. So... Again, what is happening to the arts? Because there's a passage in the in the novel about the cultural validity of reality television. That's right. Rose's parents really struggle with the whole idea of reality TV because they have a lot of cultural capital, even if they don't have very much financial capital. And so they watch prestige television. They watch art house cinema. Um, oh they just don't really have a reference point for reality TV. But it speaks to a broader problem here. I mean, my background is as a teacher trying to impart culture and novels and such like. But the... Our background knowledge of a lot of people today is the next reality television mm-hmm. show, which, as we've said, is very tenuous and it's only as good as the next one that comes along. And that's their reference point. Yes. I mean, we were sort of... The book is about reality television, so we're kind of on reality television side a bit more than we might have been otherwise. Um, Mel and I have seen ourselves a little bit in Rose's parents and their dilemmas. A little bit. Basically, Rose's parents are extensively based on us, other people that we know from um, kind of arts writing in particular. The house they live in is basically my house (laughs) with all the the palings on the fence falling down and having to be glued back up again. Unfortunately, I don't have a you know, cabinet maker daughter who can fix my house for me. But also then... uh One of Rosie's problems is, of course, her love life. Um, On one date in particular, she finds herself um, with a gentleman that basically belittles her career as a tradie. Yeah, and again, it it speaks to these kinds of lines of class that we're trying to sketch in the novel. Alistair, um, who is the bad date we're talking about, he's basically a boorish corporate man. And so for him, it's about how much you can buy to demonstrate how wealthy you are that uh, creates your sense of self and your value as a person. But that's the new reality. Well, yeah, I mean, it is for some people. Um, but that's meant to be this real flashpoint between them. Um, Rose loves to make things. Alistair loves to buy things. Yeah. But, it, you know, speaking to people that volunteer to interview others without any remuneration, etc. 
But then, of course, and we won't go into this in any great detail, we, we have um, Rosie and um, sort of finding um, a relationship on Mansions in the Sky so that you, the reader is going to have to pick up the book to find out that mm. for themselves. Mm-hmm. But one of the real challenges is then sort of where the novel starts to, to round out uh, the ethical compromise mm-hmm. in cutting costs the production company in danger lives things start to be shoddily built but if a balcony falls can we put a mattress under it and film it <laughs> i mean this is this is the this is the reality it's it's a worry it's frightening oh yeah it's all about the ends if you get good television out of it they're not worried how they got it and you know can we have a second take of that <laughs> if, if it works out so what we've got here in nailed it is uh, an insight into, well, reality television and the fact that reality is the least of its concerns. <laughs> it's all artificially contrived. And yet it does become the reality for a lot of people. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. The authors, Mel Campbell and Anthony Morris, the novel is entitled Nailed It, and it's from Echo Publishing. So thanks very much for coming in today. Thank Jan. you. And I was speaking speaking with uh, Meg Mundell about her book The Trespassers, a thought-provoking mystery set on an ill-fated migrant ship heading to Australia in a disturbing near future. Well, thank you. Thank you We're all, all going down to the green room because oh. everybody knows each other and we're going to have a party. <laughs> <laughs> it has been a very interesting, literate morning. So we'll Thank see you. you next week. We will.